Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. So what we want to do today is we want to go back and look at, again, this walk in the wilderness of a quote-unquote, and I don't even know if we're going to quote-unquote, I hate air quotes, but we'll we'll go ahead and do it today, quote-unquote, a saved generation. You say saved from what? The Israelites were saved from Egypt. They were saved from the realm of sin and death. Okay. Now, they were brought out of Egypt. They were brought out of uh, an abysmal, no pun intended, if you've read forward into Revelation, but they had descended to an abysmal level of idolatry. And we're going to read one passage that's it's not necessarily going to give you the, the full picture of how low Israel had sunk in Egypt. We we could do that some other time. But it's, it's enough just to know that as they went down to Egypt, as those souls went down to Egypt, at the same time they're being born as a nation, they're struggling too because they're struggling with the idolatry around them. And so they're, they're going to be saved from that realm. And of course, Egypt represents the realm of death or Abaddon. Pharaoh's officers tell him, you know, don't you realize Egypt is Abdah? Abdah is the, the root of Abaddon that you read about in the book of Revelation, the, the pit. I mean, they're like, Pharaoh, we're lost. That's literally what it means. It means to be lost, uh, to be destroyed. And they're like, Pharaoh, we're lost. I mean, are you not going to let these people out of here? And so uh, th- that's kind of funny, though, that when the Father saves us, we destroy the destroyer. And that's what exactly what it says in the scripture that, you know, he destroys the destroyer. So when he, when the destroyer tries to keep a saved people, a delivered people, a redeemed people, when they try to hold on to them, it's like, it destroys hell as if hell could be any worse than it is. It is. You just, you have to turn them loose. You have to let them go or, or you know, your hell, your hell will no longer be a happy hell. It'll be a very unhappy hell. Don't understand how that works exactly. But as far as that goes, they're saved people. And we can especially say that after they cross the Reed Sea, we can see this uh, miraculous, spectacular, glorious deliverance from the chariots of Pharaoh as they go down into the sea, and then they come up the other side. So, In one sense, they have been saved. They've been brought out of the idolatry and the sin and the slavery of Egypt. And then they are saved from the army of Pharaoh and his chariots. And then they're going to begin a journey in the wilderness that's going to bring them to the next level of their salvation. Now they're walking in salvation, so to speak. And I think if we had looked back at this paradigm, if if we had looked back at this model, if we were brought up in church, then a lot of the letters of the apostles would make a lot more sense to us because it's the working model. If we are to understand that we have been credited with righteousness that we've not yet walked in, this is taking us right back into the footsteps of Messiah, right back into the, the footsteps of the angel of the presence that went before the children of Israel. He leads them. And, you know, the, the, the condition is don't rebel. 
See, there's a, a difference. Once you're saved, will you continue to sin? You will. You will. You'll, you'll continue to make mistakes. And part of it is going to be ignorance, especially if uh, you didn't know the whole Bible before you were saved. Now you're having to learn what is sin. You're having to learn what the instructions of Adonai is. You're, you're not going to know until you're taught. And so the Israelites are walking in this condition. They're walking but they're having to walk in faith. They're having to walk in, in Yeshua's righteousness, in the righteousness of a word that in some cases they've never heard it before. They're not going to hear it until Mount Sinai or after as Moses continues the instruction in the, the 613. But And there might be things that are part of their cultural memory that maybe were handed down from Adam, but they're not, they don't have a, a working list of 613 commandments. As they approach Mount Sinai, they are about to hear as they walk the Big Ten at Mount Sinai. And of course, the rest of the commandments are going to hinge upon the Big Ten, just like the Big Ten hinge upon the Big Two. And they don't even have the Big Two coming out of Egypt, you know, which is Shema Israel, Hero Israel, you shall love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. They don't even have those. They don't have the basics coming out of Egypt. They've got a few things. You know, they've got, listen to Moses. <laughs> if he tells you a plague's coming, believe him. Circumcise, take a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, eat the lamb, uh, stay inside the house while you do that on this particular night. And see, even those commandments are going to be transformed once they approach Sinai and especially once they go into the, the land of Israel. The things that they did on the Passover night will be transformed into a little bit different application than they did the first time. So up to that point, very few commandments. And then they approach, they don't have time for a lot more commandments. You know, Moses might help them with the Sabbath. You know, he might help them when they start complaining about the food and the water and so forth. There might be some things that Moses points out to them if they don't already know. But it's not until they approach Mount Sinai that they are going to get something so explicit that we call it a covenant. And they have to agree to the terms. They they will no longer be able to plead ignorance once they hear the Big Ten, because they said, we will do and we will hear. We agree to do this. To hear something doesn't just mean to obey it. It means to learn and obey it. If you don't know it, you agree to learn and obey it. And so they said, we'll do it even before we learn and obey. How is that possible? Well, again, you hurry the commandment is is. Uh, one of the phrases that we use, if you know what the commandment is, you just hurry up and do it. And if you're quick to perform it, then you're leaving less lag time for something to happen where you can't perform it. And so they're saying, you know, the things that, that we know to do, we'll do. The things that we don't know to do, we will learn and then we will obey them. And so you see, up until that moment, they're walking really on nothing but grace nothing but grace up to that moment. And so something has been put into their account, and that something is the righteousness of Yeshua. It's been put into their account even before they have the opportunity to learn or to obey the commandments that will be given to them as part of this agreement, part of this covenant made at Sinai. But see, that's part of the agreement. Once they agreed and said, we will do, and we will learn, we will hear, we will obey, the implication there is the things I don't know yet, I will learn them. I agree to do that. And then once I learn them, I agree to practice walking in them. And also implied there is I'll probably make some mistakes. 
And it's not that I'm being rebellious. It's just that I'm ignorant. And, you know, like the people stood in long lines to talk to Moses because it all looks good in the Torah. But when we practically try to apply it or get along with somebody else, it doesn't work so good sometimes. And we need somebody with the wisdom. And this is, you know, where the gifts within the body of Messiah help us. They they teach us how to apply the Torah in a practical way. And so that's our agreement. So if this is credited in our, to our account before we ever do it, then once we learn it, and once we understand it, once we say, like Yeshua said, now that you say, I see, I see, now you're going to be responsible for it. Because if you didn't say, I see, I would assume you didn't understand. And there's not an accountability there yet. You're, you still, you're still working on that righteousness credit if you don't understand it. Or if you've never, you know, you're still learning. You haven't had a chance to read that one or do that one. Or just, you know, in some cases, it, most of the commandments don't even apply to you. They're, they're very specific. There's merchant commandments, farmer commandments, mom commandments, dad commandments, children commandments. There's just, there's different things. And so if you add up all the ones that apply to you personally, because, you know, there's certain things you have to set aside until there's a temple, until all 12 tribes are settled in their land. There's just certain things that aren't active at the moment. So the number of commandments we have to keep at this point are probably very few, much fewer than if all of Israel is settled in her land in peace and there is a, a functioning temple. It ratchets way up in terms of the number and the holiness that is required to engage them. But for right now, we don't have a whole lot to do. We don't have a whole lot to learn and we don't have a whole lot to do compared to what it will be like when King Messiah rules and reigns in the earth. So I don't know why we grump and complain so much about, you know, the law. I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Cheer up. It's going to get way worse if you got a problem with authority and the law and, and, and the living word of Adonai that Yeshua came to this earth to show us how to do. You know, for children of Abraham, we have to walk before Adonai and be upright, be morally upright, people of integrity learning to walk and walk what we know. And so as long as we don't know what we're doing or not doing, then we can kind of rest assured that there's a righteousness credit in your account for that commandment. But at the point you learn it, you understand it, you know how to obey it, but you say, I'm not going to do it. And he's not going to hold me responsible. I'm just going to rebel right here. I'll do exactly what I want to. He can say anything he wants to. I'm just going to do what I want because that's the way I am, right? Okay. At that point, you become your own God. And like Yeshua said, now you're guilty. And this is where, you know, like there's a, a big question mark. What happens if you abuse that righteousness credit? Because see, at the moment you understand and know how you don't need that credit. Now you're putting on Yeshua's clothes. Now you're putting on his robes of righteousness. Whereas before, it's something you haven't learned to do yet. But now that you know, and as I said, it's, it's at the point that you know, and you just refuse to walk in it. I was like, nope, not me. I'm going to go out and have some fun. I don't know that that credit is left in your account. You would have to ask the father if that credit is still in your account when you rebel. I suspect it isn't. I suspect there would, there would be a judgment and an accountability for that. That's where, you know, there's a, a verse that says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's not talking about atheists. It's talking about people who do know that there is a God, who do know 
that he's given his word and they say, I can break that word and he's not going to hold me to account. Well, he will. He will hold us to account. And, you know, I don't think we can get away with stuff by just refusing to study and learn, just continuing to be little nursing babies by choice. I don't know because see, remember how often it would say Yeshua would know what was in their hearts. They would ask him this question and he would say the exact right answer because he already knew what was in their hearts. We'll see if we go around with that idea. Well, you know what? I just won't learn anything. I'll get saved and then I won't learn anything. Then I won't be held accountable for it. I'll just sin a lot more because Paul says that makes more grace. Well, no, that's not how that grace works. When our sin abounds out of ignorance, his grace abounds. When our sin abounds out of rebellion, then we're trampling all over the blood of Messiah Yeshua. And, And I believe we are going to be called into account for that and just saying, I won't learn. He knows your heart and he's going to know exactly what you were capable of learning. I don't know why we think we could pull the wool over Yeshua's eyes or the father's eyes, but sometimes we think we can. All right, I want to read a passage and then we'll, we'll get into the into the, the teaching here about these righteousness credits. So if you have your Bible with you, just turn to Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 16, and we're not going to read the whole chapter. And and I'm going to be reading out of the NASB, not because it's any superior translation of the Bible, but just because it's easy to read and it's easy for people to understand. Because remember, we're learning out here in the wilderness of the peoples. And so if we're learning out in the wilderness of the peoples, then we want to make sure we understand the simple words before we understand the hard applications, right? So in Ezekiel 16, we'll just start up here with verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, all right, now, right here, just in your mind's eye, picture those 70 souls going down to Egypt in the wagons that Joseph sent for them. And this is basically the birth of a nation. It says, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No, I looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you abhorred, you were abhorred on the day you were born. So we've got... A couple of possibilities here. There was a lot of blood, obviously, during the time of Pharaoh's edict that the Hebrew boys would be thrown into the Nile. And of course, the, the midwives told Pharaoh, you know, they're just, the Hebrew women are too vigorous. By the time we get there, the babies are already born. And so part of this tribulation was part of the birthing of the nation as well. But remember, too, that, that there's, as they're being birthed in Egypt, it's they're contained within another nation. They're, they're, that's going to be one of the most remarkable things about the deliverance of Israel from Egypt is Adonai says, has this ever happened before? Has anyone ever taken a nation out of another nation? And so the, the idea there is it's almost like birthing a baby, that somehow in Egypt, there was a, a special protection there. So he says, when I passed by you and I saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field 
And that's exactly what happened. The more that the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. Okay, at at that point, we see him bringing them out of Egypt. He says, you're beginning to grow up now. I'm going to bring you to Sinai. And what does he say? I entered into a covenant with you. Right? So he does. He, he brings them out of Egypt where they're struggling in their blood, being birthed as a nation. And then he brings them into covenant at Sinai. But what he points out to them is at this point, they are still naked and bare. Even though they're beginning to grow up, they are still naked and bare. Remember what was said about Adam and Eve? They were naked and knew it not. Nakedness often means the absence of the commandments. The commandments are a a kind of clothing and ornament. So we we have a couple of different things here, and and I don't want to get too far into it, but we've got, you know, the, the garment of salvation. That's your basic garment. And then once you acquire the garment of salvation, then you begin to acquire robes of righteousness. This is the point, you know, once he brings you out, he cleans you up, he makes the covenant with you. And now this is your opportunity to begin to follow after him and to learn of his righteousness. And this is when you start to put on these robes of Yeshua's righteousness, the robes of his word. And so, you know, with Adam and Eve, they were able to stay in the Garden of Eden naked. And if this means without the commandments, it means that there was a growing process that still needed to take place in Adam and in Chava or Eve. And we know they had the tree of life there. They had that available to them, but they had not yet grown in it. And if you'll remember some of our past lessons, we talked about how mankind was created to pray and to obey. And if man prayed and obeyed, then the rest of the earth could become fruitful like the Garden of Eden. But apparently they were created not 100% immersed in the commandments. Apparently, this was going to take place as they interacted with the tree of life, as they walked with the voice of Elohim in the cool of the evening. And see, it's it's the voice of Elohim that you can't escape. You can't get away with it, get away from it by hiding. The voice always knows where you are. And so they were afraid when they heard the voice walking in the cool of the evening because now they've eaten something. Now they do have knowledge of good, but they also have knowledge of evil. So even though they acquired the knowledge of good, they have also acquired a knowledge that lets them know they've just done something evil. They had, at this point, apparently just, it's kind of like a golden calf thing. If you want to compare the two things, you know, Israel has just made a covenant at Sinai and falls right into the golden calf before 40 days are up. Same thing with Adam and Eve. They're placed into the garden. What do they do? They fall into the serpent's deceit. They eat from a tree that, that they were commanded not to eat of. So anyway, he, he brings us up here to Mount Sinai. He says, then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth 
and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And right here, there's a key. You know, we talk about wearing the righteousness of Yeshua. There is no righteousness that originates from in us. The righteousness is Adonai's righteousness. If there is splendor on us, it is his splendor. He has given us everything. And so when we learn to walk in the commandments, we're not learning to walk in our own righteousness. We are learning to walk in the ornaments that he has given us on credit. And so we see Mount Sinai as a betrothal. And, you know, there's still the, the fulfillment of the marriage yet to come, but we were in a state of betrothal, which means you're married already in the eyes of the law. Even though the marriage is not consummated, the idea is you're betrothed and nobody else should cross your mind. And so in the building of the Mishkan, in the building of the tabernacle, you can see these products that he's talking about, like the embroidered cloth, the porpoise skin, the fine linen, the ornaments, the gold and the silver, the fine flour and the oil. And later, Israel does find out that their fame did go forth among the nations. They don't really find that out until they cross the Jordan 40 years later, and Rahab tells them about it. But until then, they really had no idea how famous they were. That'd be pretty cool. They like lived your whole life and you didn't know you were famous, but that's kind of the way that they were walking because of the fame of even though they they fell to, you know, a very <laughs> poor level of performance at certain times in their walk in the wilderness, they also elevated themselves to a fine level of performance at other times. They had their ups and downs. But that's part of walking in the ornaments that the Father adorns us with when we are betrothed to Him. You will have some ups and some downs, but just remember, you're learning to walk in your salvation. Don't expect yourself to be perfect. It, It can be like it doesn't fit yet. You have to walk in it a while, just like a new pair of shoes. He talks about the the sandals of porpoise skin. You know, sometimes a pair of brand new shoes, you have to walk in them a bit before they feel comfortable. Certain commandments are like that. You have to walk in them a bit before they start to feel comfortable. So this describes the process. So I want to look here at these ornaments. He says, I put ornaments on you, bracelets on your hands, a necklace around your neck, a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. And of course, these crowns were thought to have been the result of when the Israelites said, we will do and we will hear. It's thought that the father dispatched angels to adorn them with crowns at that point. And it's also thought that when they built the golden calf, that he took the crowns back. And I think you can read about that in uh, Hebrews 2. The, the letter to the Hebrews. Okay, so let's now, I'm just, I'm just going to work from the newsletter. If, if you're not signed up for the newsletter, often I'll teach from the newsletter. Sometimes the newsletter will be a little bit behind the live stream, and sometimes it'll be a little bit ahead of the live stream. It just depends on what's going on in my life that week. 
but this week, I just want to continue from last week. Like we said, Israel had fallen to, to low levels of idolatry. Ezekiel 27, it says, cast away. I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Of course, he goes on and tells how they didn't. They just kept holding on to those idols. Uh, They kept going back to Egypt for idols. They went to Assyria for idols. They went everywhere for idols. But even though they had fallen that far, when Moses comes along and Aaron come along, comes along, they believed them and they obeyed the few commands that they were given. And so as they, again, they begin to walk in these righteousness credits before they ever say, we will do and we will hear at Mount Sinai, they're walking in a level of grace. And so as we look at Song of Songs chapter four, Song of Songs chapter four, we have a description of what it was like for those Israelites to walk in the grace, to walk in righteousness credited that they had not yet had the time to learn or do. And here's what it says. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. All right, so last week in the newsletter, we talked about how the Israelites were kind of in a holiness sandwich uh, as Pharaoh's army approaches them and they're right up against the Reed Sea and they say, oh my goodness, what do we do? Well, we know that the presence of Adonai went himself, went before them. And then the text says that the pillar of cloud and the, the angel peeled off and went and, and stood as their rear guard between the back of the Israelites and Pharaoh's approaching army. So that it's, it's like the, the presence of Adonai was split into the angel and then his, his very presence himself. With that intense kind of holiness, they should have been killed. Because we know when his presence is that close, like Nadav and Avihu, who rushed out without the authority to do so. They rushed out in front of their dad before he had a chance to do the incense service. We look at Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit because there was a great move of the Spirit at the time that they lied to Peter about the price that they paid, that they they kept or that they made on the property and how much they kept about it. And because this was during a time of an especial move of the Rakh HaKodesh, they just dropped dead. And so we say, well, why didn't the Israelites just drop dead? You've got the angel of the presence behind them. You've got the presence itself in front of them, they're in a holiness sandwich. And we know that they had dropped to a severe level of idolatry. What happened? Well, like the Song of Songs says, he sees them as beautiful. He sees them as they will be. And and like I said, this really grounds, I think, some grace doctrines that we learned in church. Where did those come from? This is the paradigm. This is the pattern right here. The Israelites, they they still have the taint 
of Egypt stuck to them. They're just walking in a few things. They just believe Moses and they're walking. So they, they're they're going to be saved and they're, they're going to be protected from this intense power of holiness. They're walking on credit and righteousness they haven't personally attained. So, and that's what we do once we're saved. We walk in the righteousness of Yeshua. He is the living word because we believe Adonai. If we believe Adonai, just like they did, the Israelites believed Adonai's word as spoken to them through Moses. And Moses is a metaphor for the Torah, especially when you get into the Gospels. And so we believe what the word says about Yeshua. And we believe that he is the word. And therefore, a credit was put into our account of righteousness so that even though we haven't had a chance yet to begin to walk in the things of the word, we've got this righteousness credit in our account. And we're beautiful at that point because he's going to see us as we will be. And so at this moment that the Israelites come up from the washing of the sea, they're not harmed by the intense power of his glory. It it said of them, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Okay, remember they come up out of the sea and they come up singing. They sing the song of the sea. One of the oldest hymns that's still sung in the synagogue is the song of the sea. But what's up with these lips like a scarlet thread? The temple's like a slice of pomegranate. Well, the pomegranate is a symbol of the Torah's 613 total commandments. Because usually the number of pips in a pomegranate is about that number. Probably not exact. If you sit down there and count them, let me know. Uh, No, don't. (laughs) Don't let me know that you sat there and counted out 613 pips in a pomegranate. But apparently the, the number hovers around 613. And so the pomegranate symbolizes those 613 commandments. And so as they're coming up from their washing, Coming up out of the the Reed Sea, they are being credited. And remember, your your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Now, remember, you can't keep all the commandments. You can't keep 613 commandments. They're too specific. You can keep some of them. You can't keep them all. And so you have a slice of a pomegranate. He gives each person a slice out of the pomegranate. So he's saying your slice, what would be unique to you, as a male or a female or by profession or by transactions. Um, There's all sorts of things that are going to activate a commandment. There's a slice that's unique to you. And he's saying, you know what? When you were saved, when you accept Messiah Yeshua as your savior, and then you were immersed in his name, then already you're beautiful because it's as if you have completed your slice of pomegranate already. He is crediting that to your account. And the the rabbinic way of looking at how this works is echoed by Romans 4.3. Of course, you know, Paul was a rabbi. And so this is exactly what he says. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He hadn't done all the things he was going to do, but he, he went ahead and he got credit in his account for doing it. And then he goes on in Romans 10.10, he says, for with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation, right? So salvation has to do with what you confess with your mouth, but then what you believe will affect what you do 
what you do will reflect what's in your heart. It says, for with the heart, the person believes. What will happen? If you believe, it will result in righteousness. But the problem is, you've got a long way to go, baby, before you learn the, the commandments in your slice once you're saved. And so what happens? You get a credit for all the things that you have left to learn and yet to learn. You get a credit because with salvation, see how Paul is putting these two ideas together. Salvation comes with the potential to fulfill the righteous and holy commandments. And so while we do that, he protects us with his mercy and with his grace. And that's what we're doing. We're walking in the wilderness of the peoples, just like the Israelites were walking in the wilderness. They were preparing to ascend to the promised land. And so they needed preparation time to learn the righteousness of the word, the sanctity of the word that would allow them to thrive in the promised land. The same way that Adam and Eve couldn't stay there in rebellion, he's not going to take us back into the Garden of Eden in rebellion. He has to prepare us. There has to be a transformation. We have to be uh, unafraid to hear that voice walking in the cool of the evening. And why would we be afraid? Because we have nakedness exposed. And you if go back and reread the message to the seven assemblies in Revelation and see if it doesn't talk to them about acquiring these garments, because your deeds will follow with you for good or for bad. And if you're not obedient, then you're going to have some, some nakedness. You're going to have some exposure that you don't need to have. And so as we're reading in the Song of Songs, as we got to the end of that passage that I read us, it says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. One of the applications of these two breasts is going to be the milk of the word. And the, the symbol of it is going to be the two tables or the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So these two tablets or two tables of the Ten Commandments are seen as one symbol of the two breasts because of the milk of the word. They get Ten Commandments at Sinai, and they're going to nurse on that. And then Moses is going to come down, and he's going to begin to teach them the other 603. So the expectation is, yes, we agree. I'll give you 10. He gives them 10. Just 10. Now, of course, they didn't do so well. Moses is <laughs> out of sight one minute too long, and all of a sudden, they're throwing out the, you shall not bow to an idol thing. So... Uh, like I said, we're going to have some hiccups as we walk. But Moses, the idea is he'd come down from the mountain, and as they walked toward the promised land, he would fill in the gaps. He would he would give them the rest of the pomegranate pips as they walked to the land so that they would be prepared to go up and experience it as the Garden of Eden. And so as we were reading in Ezekiel 16, remember most of that, it's a rebuke because the Israelites were given these beautiful ornaments at Mount Sinai, they were saved, they were given beautiful ornaments, and then they rebelled. And then they went back and they walked in the very sins from which he delivered them. And so he he reminds them, I found you struggling in your birth blood, and, and I brought you to be a nation. These 12 tribes are now a nation, and you're, you were struggling to emerge, and I brought you out. And, and I taught you the things you needed to know as you matured. And so he waits for them to grow up and to meet him at Sinai and to receive the words of promise at their betrothal. So in Ezekiel 16, let's look at verses 11 and 12 specifically. He says, I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, 
earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Torah. These ornaments, what were they? The Torah. How do we know that? Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 9. My son, hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching, your mother's Torah. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. And then Proverbs 6, 20 and 21. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching, the Torah of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. These are the ornaments that he gave them. He gave them the father's instruction and the mother's Torah, the commandment of the father and the mother's Torah, which Torah means teaching and instruction, by the way. That's why you you often see that reflected in the translations. So each one, it says, my son, my son, or my child. So like children, the Israelites are guided from Egypt to Sinai by Moses and Aaron and their mom, Miriam. Remember Micah 6.4 says, I sent you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead you. And then Exodus 15.20 tells how all the women went out after Miriam. So we've got fathers and mothers sent to help teach uh, the Israelite, the children of Israel. And so they were walking in the credit of Yeshua's righteousness when they were given the big 10 at their betrothal. And eventually, Moses will continue to teach them the fullness of the 613. I suspect that somehow he was passing things on to Miriam so that uh, she could also explain them to the women. And so once they learn these things and learn to walk on them, once they have all these ornaments on, then they're ready to be married, fully married, not just betrothed, but married and enter the land of their promise. So these two tablets kind of stand there and they represent to us how the Israelites were expected to grow in respect to their salvation from Egypt, the realm of sin and death. So why twins? Why does twice it say your your father's instruction or your father's commandments? It's actually discipline. There's a more disciplinary aspect of that word. And then the mother is the teaching or the Torah. Why does it divide them into mom and dad? Well, The sages say that for each brother of the 12 sons of Jacob, there was a twin sister. And you say, well, where is that in the list of 70? They're not there, right? We don't know if they were never counted. We don't know if they died in the land itself. We don't know if it's just Midrash. But at least there's this understanding that for each of the 12 sons, there was a twin daughter. And so it's maybe a coincidence, maybe not, that half of the the big 10 in our our commandments focus on our relationship to Elohim. And these are the father commandments. There's a, a strict disciplinary aspect to that. But then we also know that there are the mother commandments. There's the other commandments that teach us how to relate to human beings. And so it helps explain in Paul's letter to the Corinthians 1 Corinthians eleven seven, he says, for a man ought not to have his head covered or have something hanging down on it like a woman, since he is the image and glory of Elohim, of God. But the woman is the glory of man, of human beings. So in the congregation, you need both symbols. You need the man functioning, uh, representing the father commandments, and then you need the woman functioning representing the the mother commandments how we re- how we relate to human beings because she reflects the glory of mankind 
whereas the, the man reflects the glory of Elohim. We need both of these things if, if we're moving toward the restoration of all things. So the, the whole creation knows this. The whole creation is groaning about this because the Israelites promised, you know, the potential was there for Adam and Eve to get this started in the world and for to bring the rest of the world to a beautiful state like the Garden of Eden by praying and obeying, and then they got kicked out. Well, the Israelites promised, we will do, and we will hear, we'll, we'll restart this process. And they're credited for a righteousness they haven't yet learned or earned, but they're given time. They're given time to grow beyond the milk of the big tin. But then they broke the commandments too. They broke the idolatry commandment. They broke a, a father commandment. And they didn't even internalize the baby stuff of the big tin. So he says, okay, remove your ornaments. At Sinai, Moses made them take off their ornaments. They had been given the jewelry of a bride on credit, but they didn't know how to wear it because they were rebellious. In fact, they had already cast off their ornaments when they made the golden calf, hadn't they? Doesn't it say they took off their earrings and threw them in there? And, and this is how they made the calf. They'd already thrown off the commandments of Elohim. They had already forgotten the father's discipline and their mother's Torah. And I, I'm not sure if you know this, but if you've done work before, you know this. Sometimes the mother is the symbol of the Ruach HaKodesh, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's why you get this idea of there's the written word, the letter of the word, but then there's the spirit of the word. And once the spirit of the word moves through the, the written word, then it comes to life, the, the father and the mother aspect of it. So we know the world is judged according to the word. The world is judged according to the word at the Feast of Trumpets each year, which is called Rosh Hashanah. And this is in preparation for a final first fruits feast, which is Sukkot. The rabbinic understanding is that the righteous are sealed over at Shavuot, and then they simply keep walking in it with the power of the Ruach HaKodesh up until the Feast of Trumpets. And then some year, we don't know which one it is, when we hear the shofar sound, we will be changed. We'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord? That's what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And at that point, the corruptible body will put on immortality to live forever in righteousness. And so going back to Romans 6.13, Paul says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So he's saying, if you were saved, he's given you the milk. He gave you the big tin. Learn to walk in the big tin. Those are the majors. And then he's, he's going to take you on down the road. He's going to leave those righteousness credits in your account as you learn each one. And he says, because you are alive from the dead, he brought you, he saved you. He brought you from the realm of sin and death. Don't keep walking as though you're a dead person. And when we sin, we're walking like dead people. He says, no, submit your members as instruments of righteousness to God. As you begin to learn the Big Ten, as you begin to learn the 613, go ahead and submit your members as instruments of righteousness, because this is the righteousness of the Father. This is the righteousness of Yeshua. And you say, well, but I don't know everything. I haven't learned everything. What do I do now? 
I, I don't want to be dead. I don't want to be a dead person walking. I, w- I want to walk worthy of these ornaments that he's placed on me. He's He's put this, you know, I had faith in him, but he has faith in me too. He put this credit in my account that I would walk in his righteousness, but I feel like I fall so far short. What do I do on those days when I just feel like it's impossible to learn or do everything? Well, this is exactly what grace is for. Whatever you have left to learn is not a problem. As long as you just keep your promise to do and to hear, to do the things you know to do and to hear, to keep learning. And as you learn and as you understand, to keep obeying. That if he presents you with the next commandment, that you don't just don't bow up on him and rebel and say, uh-uh, that one's not for me, unless it isn't for you. <laughs> it's like, there, like you said, you just get a slice and he's going to keep feeding you these pomegranate pips out of your slice. But what you never want to do is say, Mm-mm, I don't want that pip. I don't want that commandment. Don't tell me that one's mine. I don't want to do it. That's a rebellion. Because even if we say, you know what, that's going to be a hard pomegranate pip to swallow. That's just not natural for me. You know, uh, I love my shrimps. <laughs> that's a hard one for some people. Some people, it's nothing. We all have different ones. What about the gossip? That's a hard one. In fact, James says the tongue can no man tame. So we know for every single human being, there is one pomegranate pit we have not quite yet swallowed. We have not yet quite walked in that ornament. But what are we doing? We're saying, Father, if I do gossip, I'm going to repent. I don't want to. I don't want to do it. That's what Paul said. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing them. So if even Paul had some pomegranate pips left to deal with, And his slice, that tells us we too will probably have some pomegranate pips left to deal with in our slices. The key is don't resist. Don't want to sin. We we will sin. Don't want to. In fact, maybe that's a prayer sometimes. If it's a biggie and it's a hard one and you're having trouble overcoming it, say, Father, first of all, make me not want to want it. Make me not want to want it. You start where you can with those big ones. And say, I'm not resisting you, Father. It's this corruptible body that is resisting you. You still haven't resurrected it yet. Could you please deal with this body? Because I'm having trouble talking to it today. (laughs) That's why so many times in the Psalms, it says, you know, the soul is a bundle of appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. Look how many times the soul is addressed directly. Be still, oh, my soul. Basically, it's saying shut up to yourself. Because sometimes you just need to tell yourself to shut up. Because if you do, if you keep talking, you're going to talk yourself into that sin. Or you're going to talk yourself out of doing that commandment. And so sometimes the soul is just shut up, soul. Be silent on my soul. But other times, you don't need to just sit there and be a bump on a log. It's like, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Speak up. Say something. It's going to help you engage. And so in this process, as you're working through this, It's helping you develop in your salvation to grow in respect to your salvation until you just don't have any resistance left to the word. And if when Yeshua returns or when you were resurrected from the dead, if that was the manner of your walk to the end, then if there was any remaining deficits, you know how fast they can be fixed? The blink of an eye, that fast, because you don't have any resistance. Because see, when this body arises incorruptible, it's not going to have any trouble at all keeping a commandment. It's, it's this corruptible body. It's the struggle of the soul 
He is saving your soul. You are saved, but he is also saving your soul by, day by day. He's saving your appetite, emotion, desire, and your intellect. And it's it's fixed in this corruptible body. So sometimes your, your soul and your body, they're in cahoots against you. They're, they're teaming up against the spirit in you, which is truth. And you're having to learn to say, I'm not going to function by what I think I feel I want. I'm going to function by it is written. And if I will function by it is written, then he can do something with me. And so what's the progression here? We have the first fruits of the barley at Passover. Remember, that's where you get all these righteousness credits. And then you walk to the first fruits of the wheat at Shavuot. And guess what? You get more credits. You know, because at Mount Sinai, from there on, there's, there's going to be a lot more commandments as you were taught them. You're still going to get righteousness credits in there. You didn't just get credit for the Big Ten. Now you're going to get credit for all the pomegranate pips in your slice. But what if you refuse to wear those ornaments? What if you refuse to walk in that righteousness of Yeshua? Remember, the whole point of that was to make them famous to the nations. Remember how Ezekiel said, your fame spread abroad to the nations because you were so beautiful? Sin makes us ugly. If we want the fame of Yeshua, if we want the fame of the Father to spread out to the nations, then we need to walk worthy of our calling. We need to walk worthy of those ornaments. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the nose ring of the commandments is, but you know what? Whatever he has given us, we want to wear it in a beautiful way. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.